put yourself in other people's shoes and understand that the difference is just by luck, by sheer luck that you were born in a different place. Hi, this is Bianca. And this is Anna, your hosts of Girl Talk Monday's podcast, where we discuss female empowerment, love and relationships, and everything in between. In this podcast, we speak to founders of fashion businesses, content creators, entrepreneurs, psychologists, and authors to inspire women to reach and fulfill their dream careers. So welcome to Girl Talk Mondays. Today we speak to Tara Kingarlu. Tara is an award-winning journalist, author, and humanitarian having reported, written, and produced for major global news channels. She launched Art of Hope, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing mental health support to refugees in war-torn countries, and has recently published her first book, The Heartbeat of Iran. Well, thanks so much for having me. My name is Tara Kangarlu, and I'm an international journalist. I started my career with NBC in Los Angeles, so a local news station right after... Uh, well, actually, I was still in graduate school, and I afterward went to work for CNN in Washington, D.C., and then CNN International in Atlanta, because as you guys know, the headquarters and the motherships, as they say, are in Atlanta, and then joined Al Jazeera America in New York. So that's sort of a quick answer to your question of how I got into journalism. But I think um, the long answer is that, you know, I was always passionate about storytelling, and inherently, I always found myself telling stories of different places. Because again, as you know, but your listeners may not, I'm Iranian-American. So I was born and raised in Iran, and I moved to the U.S. when I was a teenager. You know, I was constantly back and forth, and, and I always found myself telling stories of living in the U.S. to my Iranian friends, and then living in Iran to my American friends. Because, you know, the two places were so distant from another. And also, you know, for the lack of relations, obviously these two countries have been um, uh, distant from one another and estranged, that's the word I'm looking for, estranged for, for the last four years. So to make the long story short, my career in journalism, uh, I think, stemmed from my passion in storytelling, but I, I very much wanted the traditional route. I, I got my master's in broadcast journalism um, at USC and then sort of, you know, started my my career that way. I mean, you've had an incredible career working with loads of big news channels, and you then decided also to launch a business of your own. Could you talk us through what Art of Hope is and what made you decide to focus on mental health? Absolutely. So Art of Hope is a nonprofit organization, and uh, all of us from the U.S. side, including myself, we do this pro bono. It's, a, it's a really a passion project, and all the uh, resources that we cultivate and the funds that we raise go to the ground in the Middle East, in Lebanon specifically, where we do the work that we do. And as you said, you know, I'm, I'm a global advocate on mental health. It's an incredibly important topic to my to my heart, um, both for personal reasons and also professional reasons. And with Art of Hope, that's what we do. We support refugees, specifically Syrian refugees and, and Palestinians and, and uh, vulnerable host communities, again, in Lebanon to cope with trauma and mental health you know, needs uh, that they may have as a result of uh, displacement and, and war and, and conflict. Now, you asked me how I started, uh, Bianca, 
with uh, my work, you know, as, as a reporter, as a storyteller, producer, and, and journalist, I, I had an opportunity to travel quite uh, a lot you know, globally. And my focus was always the Middle East and the MENA region, partly because of my own background. So since 2014, I spent a lot of time in the region, in Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey, focusing on the rise and fall of ISIS, the Syrian conflict, and the large influx of Syrian refugees into neighboring countries of Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. And, and you know, quite frankly, I every story you touch, every issue that you cover, you realize that fundamentally it's about people, right? And these are human beings, these are, these are individuals, these are mothers, daughters, fathers, grandparents that are, you know, right now we're seeing what's unfolding in Palestine. And, you know, these are, these are individuals. You know, I, I, had a, I had a Syrian doctor who once told me that every missile strike, every bullet shot is a story, is a person. And we, we tend to forget that um, in the West. And um, we really look at these issues through news headlines, but it's beyond that. And I got to experience that firsthand. So, mm-hmm. so in 2016, I decided that um, I really want to focus on the issue of mental health and psychosocial support and trauma relief within these populations. And I decided that, you know what, I want to work in one of the most difficult places, and that is Lebanon. It has the highest number of refugees per capita. The country is in dire financial uh, needs, it, it, it's economically broken, and the August 4th explosion was pretty much you know, the last straw. I mean, it's, it's just the situation on the ground is quite, is quite um, devastating, really. So that's what, that's what we do. It's a small nonprofit, so you know, we don't compare it to big INGOs or big charity organizations, but it is small, it's incredibly grassroots. And you know, um, I, I, I very much, focus on supporting locals and grassroots and and really being able to collaborate with them and empower them because I fundamentally believe that you know you cannot work in a community without partnering with locals because they know their issues they know what they're working on and they know what the needs are so so that's what we do at Art of Hope and whoever wants to learn more about our work or support or get involved they can go on our website artofhopeglobal.org and um, yeah, get in touch with me. <laughs> wow, that's such an amazing thing to hear. And that's such a great initiative. Because like you said, every time we hear news headlines, and especially if you're not actually, you know, in these countries faced with that situation yourself, yeah. it's very hard to imagine. And the trauma that must come with that, you know, there can never be enough support, I believe, in mental health. Definitely. I think, I think with, with, with the pandemic, uh, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. and you know Europe started talking about mental health openly. And quite frankly, uh, part of me is frustrated because I'm like, okay, did it have to take a pandemic for people to start talking about mental health? But the part of me is happy because now I realize that, okay, uh, or I would think that there would be more global attention on larger mental health and psychosocial needs of, of the more vulnerable communities. So definitely. That's incredibly interesting because I remember when when I was actually in my master's, we had a course where we were focusing on helping different NGOs and supplying them with any kind of support, digital support they would need, because I did I did a marketing degree. And we worked with one team who were putting in water systems. Um, in a few different regions in Africa. And what they were saying was that the people in this community really needed support. What they needed was someone to talk to, someone to make them feel hopeful and to make them feel like they're not alone, they're not fighting for themselves. There are people that really care and want to support them. 
So I just, yeah, I just find it so incredibly amazing that you have set this up and that you're really pushing to help those who, who just need that extra backing, like who needs someone to hold them up. But I was, I was wondering, what are some of the initiatives that you have put up in order to support them? Great. Um, and I, one of the things I would say um, is that I realized from, from very early on, um, working in the field and visiting conflict zones and, you know, spending time in, in vulnerable communities, that there, there's really no difference between us and, and those folks who are at that moment faced with those circumstances. And, and I think fundamentally, if people understand that, so many of the sort of day-to-day challenges affecting people who are grappling with some sort of, a, of an unfortunate um, circumstance can be resolved at least more quickly. And really, the bottom line is that there's no difference between myself and, you know, that woman who's, who's currently displaced. I just happen to be lucky to be born in a different country. And I really encourage people, again, those in the U.S., U.K., Europe, who are living in, in different circumstances to tap into their empathy because very easily our places can be swapped, right? And with regards to the initiatives that, that we do with Art of Hope, like I said, you know, we, we specifically work on trauma relief and psychosocial support. And we do that through, uh, much, most of the time, through art therapy, um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, one-on-one engagements with the kids, um, group activities. And like I said, we as Art of Hope partner with local NGOs um, on the ground. And unlike the U.S. or the U.K. or many other countries, me- the mental health sector is privatized in Lebanon. And on top of that, the issue of mental health is incredibly taboo in the Middle East, as is in many other parts of the world. So not an accessible service. And so on top of the many challenges that we have, we also have a shortage of in-ways professionals. You know, there are not that many accredited art therapists, for example, in Lebanon, the way that they are in, in the U.S. So we also do a lot of trainings. In fact, um, the last couple of months, we've been working very hard to do TOTs, training of trainers. And uh, right now, for World Refugee Day in June, we're having a huge webinar on mental health first aid that are that is going to be conducted with three very professional and you know successful art therapists in the U.S. in New York, and we're going to be inviting mental health professionals from the region. And in fact, we're at, I actually want to open open it up to Palestinians as well. Um, again, because of, of the, the horrific events that we're seeing unfold right now. And um, lots of it has to do with training, but also in the field uh, workshops and activities that we do pertaining, you know, mental health. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Do you engage with all ages, so from children to elderly, or do you focus on a specific group? Uh, we focus on mainly children. So the first year that we started, um, we uh, worked in an incredibly poor neighborhood called Hayal Garbi, again, in partnership with one of our local grassroots NGOs. There were two sisters, psychosocial workers, and an art therapist and a project manager. And uh, we supported about 100 children. And these were Syrian refugee children, as well as uh, Palestinian refugees and uh, very poor Lebanese. And again, I was just throw some numbers to put things in context. You know, Lebanon is a country of close to 6 million in population with nearly 2 million refugees, including 500 Palestinian refugees who've been living in the country for, you know, many, many years. And so 
again, this just underscores the the tremendous need that that needs to you know be given in the field uh, into these areas. So the first year we supported these hundred kids, uh, but mainly Syrians who escaped Raqqa and Membej, you know, two strongholds of ISIS. 2014-15 and so with that group uh we had children from age five six and then up until sort of 12 13 but obviously divided you know because each age group has to work you know together we had two age groups and then we also worked with their mothers because we wanted to do family interventions we wanted to you know do women empowerment um through vocational training so we did a lot of sewing classes and in parallel we have social workers and psychologists, and they can follow up, you know, case by case. So those are the first years that we really immersed ourselves in that community. Then we followed through for another half year, and then we expanded our work to the north, and we, we ran a few summer camps, for example, for boys um, aging from, let's say, 8 until 11, and then we did a lot of leadership uh, workshops with teenagers, so we do anywhere between three months to uh, six months to a year programming, depending on you know, obviously the budget, the resources that we have, um, you know, our, our bandwidth. Another example that I want to share is that right after the August 4th explosion, you know, I went to I went to Lebanon and we decided that, you know what, let's work in communities that are not getting the support of larger organizations and um, they're sort of being forgotten. So we supported a thousand individuals in, again, a, a port neighborhood that was directly uh, affected by the blast. It was adjacent to um, to the site of the explosion. At the end of that sort of distribution day where we were giving out um, hygiene kits and doing sort of one-on-one uh, assessment of their of their needs, we ended up doing a big circus for the kids of that neighborhood because we just want to bring some laughter. And so we do some of these one-off projects, but fundamentally we focus on kids teenagers, but also we do family intervention and therefore work with mothers. And one of the things that I'm really keen on doing is uh, focus on postpartum depression among among mothers. So that's something that we're really hoping, hoping to do. That's amazing. What are some of the challenges? I'm sure it oh, must so be many. challenging. Yeah. Are there any big challenges you've faced whilst doing this? I think the challenges, I think there's so many logistic challenges, of course, the lack of resources, lack of funding, obviously, is always the case with, you know, any nonprofit that you speak with. But I also think that what what frustrates me the most is the, again, the fact that the international community has such short memory and forgets about these issues that fundamentally affects the global community. Because if a, a child refugee is being taken care of, and taken care of and, and cared for, this child is going to grow to be a successful, thriving member of the community and therefore contribute to the larger society, whether that be in the Middle East or Europe or US. And when people, again, create this us and them dynamic, it's detrimental not just to the for the life of that child, but to, to the entirety of that society. And I think that's the most frustrating part for me. And but you know this is a fight that I would continue fighting, and, and and I think I get so much of my energy from that frustration. But working in the field is so beautiful, and again, mm-hmm. there's no difference between me and you know the families that I that I work with, or or the professionals that um, you know we support mm-hmm. through Art of Hope. Mm-hmm. It's just we we live in different places. Yeah, it's very difficult when you are in a safe space 
There's nothing around you that's threatening. It can be really, really hard to understand what someone else is going through if you haven't experienced it yourself. And I think with everything going on in the world, with the pandemic, people are starting to shut out and they're starting to be scared of negative information and they're starting to, you know, move into themselves and be like, how do I stay calm? How do I stay positive? Because there's so many things going on. What would you suggest to someone who wants to get involved, but is scared? Like what, what do you suggest? I think educate yourself. I think people need to educate themselves. People need to not just look on Instagram for information. People mm -hmm. need to read it. People need to go to credible news sources, uh, outlets, especially young people, mothers, again, Instagram is, is, a, is a great platform, but it's not a new source as in, as in it, it doesn't filter what's credible and what's not. So I suggest people really digging in for sources that would give that credible and newsworthy information that, you know, you need to understand these very complex and critical issues. So that's number one. I also would say, um, you know, tap into your empathy, put yourself in other people's shoes and understand that the difference is just by luck, by sheer luck that you were born in a different place. Because other than that, there's really nothing. And I think right now, again, all this technology has enabled us to uh, connect so quickly and so easily and be this inter interconnected global village. And I think that's very powerful. And I would suggest that people use that to the benefit of this whole of the global community, not just for themselves or you know their their families. And quite frankly, I think we're a bit spoiled in in the U.S. or the West. You know, let's not let's not be spoiled. Let's be kind people. Let's be empathetic. Let's raise our hand and and understand that. It's through this love and kindness and empathy that these challenges, these global challenges can ultimately get, get resolved in, in ways because the young kids that we are raising as mothers and, you know, uh, future mothers will become the leaders that would be decision makers. So that's incredibly important that we emulate that empathy. I think that's very well said. And yeah, <laughs> people need to actively look to resources and get information and just be empathetic people in general. And, and Bianca, uh, I, I would add to that very quickly is that, you know, even in the US, there's so many challenges affecting uh, people of color, um, ethnic minorities, the very many, you know, poor neighborhoods in this country that need uh, support and attention. And we tend to forget. So in our own backyard, these challenges exist. And I think we can start from where we are. We can start from our backyard and look at our neighbor and our neighborhood and, and people who are within our, our own communities. And I think that's a great first mm -hmm. step. So it's just mm -hmm. it's as close as it is to our home street down, block down, all the way to the other side of the world. You are also launching your very first book, The Heartbeat of Iran, which is a collection of different stories from the authentic voices of everyday Iranians. I'm sure this has been a huge highlight of your career so far. Can you tell us a little bit more about the story? What are the key takeaways from your book? And yeah, just tell us a little bit about what we can expect when we read The Heartbeat of Iran. Thanks so much, Bianca. And yes, this is a book. I actually got my first copies um, last week. I'm incredibly excited because this is the result of 
four years, really almost four years of writing and reporting and research. And the book was supposed to come out last year, but due to the pandemic, my publisher who is in New York uh, decided that, you know, we should put a hold on it and, and release it this year, which is actually quite timely. I think so much of this ties to my career and my passion for storytelling and bridging cultures and really crossing barriers through storytelling. You know, I, I've worked in the Middle East for quite a few uh, years and, you know, Iran is my home country. So it was so important to tell the stories of everyday Iranians. As you mentioned, the book is a collection of 24 profiles, everyday stories of um, ordinary Iranians from different walks of life, left, right, north, south, conservative, not conservative, um, religious, not religious, men, women. You know, um, I, I actually uh, delved into the LGBTQ community in Iran and you know, th through these stories, I unpack a host of issues, a host of sociocultural, political, and religious issues. Uh, and again, back to our earlier uh, discussion, so much of what comes out of the Middle East and many other parts of the world are, are sort of filtered through these news headlines and insular narratives that don't necessarily give the whole picture to the Western audience. And that was what I was trying to do with my book, to take my Western audience, my non-Iranian reader and my, my non-Iranian audiences into Iran, into this incredible country, the nation of 80 million, uh, one of the most diverse and, and vibrant communities in the entire region uh, through these stories. And again, I want to emphasize that this is not a, you know, rosy, glossy picture of Iran. There's, there are, they, there are a host of challenges in this country. And, um, you know, we can talk about that for hours, really. But the idea is to give that textured and nuanced narrative rather than what you guys hear for 30 seconds on a news headline. So mm -hmm. for anyone who wants to travel to Iran, you know, you can, you can do that through the heartbeat of Iran and, and these beautiful stories um, of these beautiful people. It's available on Amazon anywhere really where people buy their books. So I'm really excited to share it with the world. I think it's incredible that you are, you know, like we spoke about before, you're spreading the voice of those who have an important story to tell and maybe that don't have the platform to tell it. I was wondering a little bit more about your process of writing. How did you choose who to interview? How did you come about these people? Did you travel? What did you do? Anna, that is such a great question um, because it, it wasn't an easy task. Girls, it was, it was one of the hardest things I, I've done in my entire life, I would say, career, for sure. I mean, it took four years, really. Um, but what I knew is what I, I, I knew the stories that I wanted to tell, right? I mean, I'm from, I was born and raised in Iran, you know, and, and I lived in the U.S. sort of in, in parallel. And so I'm familiar with the non-Iranian audience because I'm an American journalist, right? So I, I understand the audiences in the U.S. Uh, but then I also understand the Iranian society. So I knew the issues. I knew the challenges. You know, I knew, for example, that I want to talk about the, the many environmental challenges that are affecting farmers, you know, laborers, and really ordinary Iranians right now. Or I knew that I want to tackle the LGBTQ issues. Um, I, I know that I wanted to talk about sanctions, the financial crisis. You know, the lack of economic opportunities and job opportunities for ordinary Iranians. Um, I also knew that I want to talk about, you know, women and girls and, and um, the fact that they make up half of the society. And let's tap into different female 
led stories, whether it's a success story, whether it's tragic tale. In in this case, I have, you know, a child bride because that's an issue that happens in, you know, rural communities and villages. But then on the other hand, I wanted to capture the triumphs of Iranian women. And and I do that through stories of, of the many uh, women who I, um, I profile. And so the issues that I wanted to tackle, I knew firsthand. And then I went to find these people. And they're real people. I mean, these are real issues. And I sometimes wish that I could do a book, Heartbeat of the U.S. or Heartbeat of America, because I feel, you know, there's a host of beliefs and, and uh, a diversity of, of mind in, in the U.S. that mirrors that diversity elsewhere in the world, including Iran. So the struggles of, you know, a young mom who married at an early age and ended up being a single parent. I think mirrors so much of the struggles of another single mom elsewhere in the world or, you know, a young man coming out to his, to, to his family about his sexuality and the struggles of living gay in a conservative society. I think mirrors, you know, a young man's coming out story here in, I don't know, Idaho or Alabama or a more conservative state or city in the U.S. And, and I think so much of, of these mirrors would again, bring out that empathy that we talked about and, and bridge cultures and bridge barriers and bring people together. So yes, um, I thought about the issues that I wanted to tackle and that's how I went about um, finding these people. And uh, for the book, I actually um, spent a lot of time in Istanbul because the time zone is so similar to, to Tehran, it's actually the same. But I didn't, I didn't travel to Iran because it just wasn't, wasn't feasible for me to do that, you know, trying to do my other job and my, my work and just be as close as I am. But I mean, the book is a result of hours and hours, hundreds of hours of interviews and phone calls and FaceTime and these conversations with people. That's wonderful. And you must have also gotten extremely close then to each of these individuals, kind of got to live their story through them and then execute it in your book. I'm very excited to read it and I can't wait. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I actually interviewed about 40 people, I have to say. I interviewed about 40 people. You know, I wanted to include all 40, but my editor said that that's not going to happen because it would be a thick book. <laughs> Can you imagine? So we, we, we cut it down, but it's just, it was just the hardest process to cut the stories and, you know, pick and choose who I want to feature and profile. But, but um, I just hope it gives a glimpse. You know, I just hope it gives a glimpse to my non-Iranian readers about the beauty and, and diversity and um, humanity that exists in this country. I keep saying that, you know, Iran is not a country made up of 80 million nuclear heads. It's made up of 80 million human beings. And there's yeah. a big distinction there. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's great that a lot of the times you see books where people talk about purely success or purely failures, but I think it's amazing that you're just trying to capture a society. And yeah it mirrors what it looks like in Sweden or if you're in China, you know, it, it's just, it brings people together, yeah. like you said, and that's the beauty of it. And maybe next you can do every other country. Imagine. <laughs> every oh, that would be amazing. I would love that. I seriously love yeah. that. I mean, I was thinking, Oh, I wanted the, I want to do the heartbeat of Yemen. I want to do the heartbeat mm-hmm. of Afghanistan, you know, because there's so much humanity and love, you know, life captured yeah. in in these stories that are universal again if these are universal stories specific to these countries you know and i put things in context because you know fundamentally i'm a journalist i'm a reporter so i added that context that would make sense of the issues but these stories of loss of grief of of dreaming about you know your goal 
going above and beyond to to reach that that target. I think these are universal. So um, I look forward to sharing it with you all. Yeah, I look forward to reading it. I I was just wondering, um, since, you know, the book, it includes really, really positive stories, but then also some really difficult ones, some very heavy ones. Mm. Are you naturally a very optimistic person? You know, how do you stay positive when you hear so many stories that really make your heart hurt? How do you keep it up? That is such an important question. And I think about that often. you know, for me, because of my work, and, and I think so much of that is more reflected in, in you know, my journalism. You know, the book obviously was very heavy and, and challenging, and, and the stories were heartbreaking. And I actually got really emotional throughout the process. But I think, you know, working in the field humbles you. You know, it really, really gives you the strong perspective on life. And and I'm just really honored to have worked with these people, to have to have the opportunity and the privilege to work in in the field, it's such an honor to be able to you know sit with with people who share their stories with me and trust me and would want to ampl- amplify their their stories through my pen or pencil or whatever you want to call it. But I mean, you know, in my private life, I. I try to kind of create a space for myself. So you know, I wear pink because I think it's happy and it brightens your your day. Um, just because the the rest of what I cover and focus on is not always happy and bright. So I tend to be a happy person in my personal life. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I love wearing heels and wearing pink because otherwise I would go nuts. Yeah, it helps a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, you must be so proud. I cannot even begin to imagine how many people you've helped and supported. So mm-hmm. oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, I think more than being proud, I, I I actually never feel proud. I always feel, okay, what's next? What am I doing next? What's happening? But I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm sure looking back, you can definitely see a huge huge success in your career through the stories you've told and the networks you've worked for, the book you're launching. For anyone aspiring to pursue a career in journalism, is there any advice you would give? One thing I would say is do it because you're passionate about this field. Do it because you see it as a calling and a purpose. Because, you know, fundamentally journalists should be or are public servants. You know, this is for the well-being of the of the society. And, you know, there is no democracy without freedom of press and freedom of information. So do it for all the right reasons. Learn to educate yourself along the way. You know, I always say that I'm learning something new every day and I'm educating myself every single day. And you have to be open to all the challenges that are thrown your way. So do it because you're passionate about it and be a student throughout your career. So for all of our listeners, can you tell them where they can find you? Yes, I uh, can be found pretty much um, on all social platforms, uh, but my website is tarakangarloo.com, um, on Instagram at tarakangarloo, at Twitter at tarakangarloo, you know, write to me, tweet, email. Um, my book is going to be released on June 1st. Uh, for Art of Hope, people can visit artofhopeglobal.org. Thank you for listening to our episode with Tarek Ngarlu. We hope you found this episode insightful into the career of a successful journalist, mental health advocate, and author. If you want to learn more about the Art of Hope, Tara's non-for-profit, and how you could be a force for change, 
visit her website linked in the show notes below. Tara's book, The Heartbeat of Iran, is officially released and is beautifully written to capture the authentic voices of its people. Until next time, bye! bye.